me look at Acts 18 and verse 1, Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 and then pray and sort of ground our time there. We will be looking at various passages. Um, for those of you who came with your own Bibles, uh, just so you know, I, I, I use the English Standard Version. It's not because I think it's the only proper version. It's just the one I happen to be using. There are, I noticed this church does have those as pew Bibles as well. So if yours is um, different enough that you want to follow with me, I guess you can borrow one of their pew Bibles. Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we consider your word this morning, this word that is superintended by your spirit at the hand of Luke, for the benefit not only of Theophilus to whom he is writing this, but for the benefit of your church in every age. Pray that you would help us to understand what it is that Luke is communicating here about Paul's mission to Corinth and, and in a greater sense about Paul's understanding of the missionary call, of what it means to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have not heard. Pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds to give us understanding and to cause us to repent where we need to repent, to rejoice where we ought to rejoice, to grow in our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said at the beginning, I, I met Brad Buzer in 1999, um, the first time he had just come off the field, and we were, we were, I was at a pastor, at the time the youth pastor of my church, I was a volunteer on his staff named Brian Murphy, and he invited us, some, of, some of us to his house to meet Brad. Brad gave a presentation on what he had done in missions, and it was the first time that I began to think about uh, what does it mean to reach unreached people groups. I was in seminary at the time, but uh, you won't be surprised to hear that they didn't spend much time talking about that at my seminary. And so I was challenged by this and began to give it some thought. And when I was eventually called by the church to become the youth pastor as Brian moved up to executive pastor in that church um, and began to participate in that ministry of teaching the youth, I asked Brad to come speak. He had spoken at, at a camp in California called Hume Lake. My students were there. He and I had spoken together there. And I said, Brad, would you come? And I've been preaching through the book of Matthew with my youth. Would you come and do the Great Commission for us? And then we'll have a lunch for the youth, etc." cetera. Um, so he said yes, and so he did. And then 
during that time that he visited, that was probably 2001 or so, 2002, during that time I, I asked him, I remember at the luncheon, hey, well, what would you recommend I read on missions? Because I'd like to know more about what you're saying about God's heart for the nations. And Brad said, have you heard of John Piper? And I said, I've heard of him. And he's like, have you ever read any of his books? I said, no. And he said, you should read this book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And so I said, okay. So I immediately ordered it and read that book. I bring that up only because it brings me to here. Where we're, here we are in John Piper's, well, he probably wouldn't appreciate it being called his church. Christ's church where John Piper preached for a while. How about that? Bethlehem Baptist Church. And, and Brad sits here and Brian Murphy sits here. And the Lord has brought us a long way from those days of my first inquiries into what is the Lord doing in this world? What does he want his church to be doing in this world? What are our responsibilities? What's my responsibility as a pastor? During that time of knowing Brad after reading Piper's book and spending some more time thinking about missions, I considered going into full-time, um, long-term missionary church planting. I considered going with um, someone named Joseph and Jessica Bonier, and my wife and I were going to go with them. Joseph and Jessica were um, staff with us at the church we were at. They are now staff at Radius. Uh, but we considered going into that together. And I wrote Brad an email asking him about it. And I got an email response from Brad saying, uh, I just said, hey, do you think I should go into missions? And he responded to me in all caps, you should not go into missions. <laughs> Which, if you know Brad, that's an unusual message. He gave it to me and one other guy who had brain cancer. <laughs> so... Didn't speak too well to me at the time. Anyway, but I took it as the word of the Lord. Um, I was looking for a way out. The, anyway, I, I read the rest of the email, and to get to the story, Brad actually said to me in that email, which I think is the more important part of the story, Brad said to me, there aren't enough pastors who are planting churches to raise people up. And you're quite good at raising up people to go into the mission field. So you should plant a church and raise up people because we need some guys to do that. Um, and so, and then he said, and if you start planting a church and no one's going, then you should just go yourself. I said, okay. So I, uh, I planted the church that I pastor currently. And by the grace of God, in, in the midst of planting that, we decided to start Radius International. And the Lord has sent out eight uh, full-time missionaries from us so far in the last couple of years and, and uh, 10 more applicants currently in our church. And so we're thankful for that. But it's been through those many years of study and thought and trying to engage in missions that I've wanted to spend a long time trying to understand what does the Bible have to say about this task? You know, as a pastor, I feel it's my responsibility to properly teach my church on what the Bible has to say about Christ's mission in the world. And to properly equip our people whom the Lord may uh, feel pleased to, to call into the mission field uh, from our church. And so I began to study that question. And one particular interest in my study became the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul became a particular interest for me because he was the man who was committed to not building on another man's foundation. As we all know from Romans 15 and verse 20 and following, Paul was said, I want to name Christ where he's never been named. I want to uh, build where, if you will, no other man has built before. And so um, I thought this is the man I ought to study because this is the kind of missions that my church is interested in engaging in. We want to plant churches where Jesus has never been named, among tribes and tongues where Jesus has never been heard. And so if we want to do that, then we should probably spend some time studying how Paul did that. That was our goal as a church, and I, I can tell you that's our goal at Radius, to train people, to plant churches, um, not building on another man's foundation, but somewhere where Jesus has never been named. So what I want to do this morning is look closely at Paul as he planted a church in Corinth. And really, my desire this morning is to provide for you, if you will, a kind of positive apologetic or explanation of Paul's understanding of his mission. Not only what he is to do, but how he is to do it and what responsibility he bears in it. I want to look at, if you will, 
what was Paul's commission, what was Paul's method, and what was Paul's responsibility as a missionary? Because we know Paul is not just a pastor, but a missionary who also pastored some of those churches for some time. And so I wanted to look at those three things. What is Paul's understanding of his commission as a missionary? What is Paul's method or his understanding of the method he ought to use as a missionary in planting a church, if you will? And, and what is Paul's um, understanding of his personal responsibility? Those are the three things I want to look at. And, and here's what I want to do as we look at those three things. I want you to understand that I'm using Paul's missionary church planting effort in Corinth as one example. I'm not saying that Acts 18 is the definitive text to understanding Paul's missiology. I'm saying I'm using this, if you will, as kind of a case study. Paul's church planting in Corinth. And I'm using it as a case study or one example of his consistent pattern. And I'm going to show you his consistent pattern. Further, I'm going to contend that Paul's consistent pattern is in fact the same pattern used by all of the apostles. So it's not just used by Paul in Corinth, it's used by Paul everywhere. And it's not just used by Paul everywhere, it's used by all the apostles of Christ. Finally, I'm going to contend that this same pattern has been passed to us. It's been passed to us. So our commission, method, and responsibility in missions is essentially the same as that of Paul and the apostles. I say essentially the same because the general pattern that we follow is the same. I don't say it's exactly the same because none of us are apostles. Right? And so there are some distinctions. But let's look at those three things. And let's turn to the first aspect of Paul's missionary task I want to talk about, which is Paul's commission. What is Paul's understanding of his commission as a missionary? Look at Acts 18 and verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Just for some context, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He'd been sent out by the church at Antioch. He had done one missionary journey. Then he returned home to report, essentially, and was sent out again on the second missionary journey. He, in that midst of that journey, had what we know as the, the call of the Macedonian man that turned him toward Achaia that turned him toward Macedonia, and he headed into Philippi, and, and he came into Corinth, etc. And so Athens was on the way to Corinth. He had gone to Athens um, and delivered his famous sermon on Mars Hill, um, or at the Areopagus, uh, and then he went to Corinth, which is in Achaia. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And we learn more about Aquila and Priscilla as Acts goes on. I won't spend any time on them this morning. They, but they, he met them because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, which is tent making, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Now notice verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now this is a summary statement of what you're going to read throughout the rest of this passage. Paul would first, we all I think are probably familiar with the fact that whenever he came to a city, if there was a synagogue, he would go to that synagogue on the Sabbath and begin preaching in the synagogue, teaching in the synagogue, reasoning, this word here, Reasoned is this word um, from which we get the word dialogue. The dialogue, though, is not the sense of an exchange, um, like I ask you a question and then, then I just wait for your answer, but a dialogue in the sense that Paul was making positive affirmations. Jesus is the Christ. The, it is true of the Old Testament that the Christ must suffer and die and raise from the dead. Look at these texts. Any questions? Yeah, what about this? What about that? We don't believe this. Okay, well, here's my arguments for this. Here's my argument for that. That's essentially what Paul would do in the synagogue, everywhere he would go. And so Paul would do that every Sabbath. But notice the, the conclusion of verse 4, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, it's not because there's a large contingency of Greeks in the synagogue, though there may have been some God-fearing Gentiles there, it's largely because of the fact that what you're going to see in the rest of this passage is when the Jews would reject Paul, he would go out and then go to the streets and go after the Greeks or the Gentiles. 
That's what he tended to do. But notice the wording there. And tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He tried to persuade them. What was Paul's goal? To persuade both Jews and Greeks. What was he trying to persuade them to? Or of what understanding did he want to persuade them to, if you will? What, what was it? Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, or if you remember, Paul had left Silas and Timothy behind um, and went forward, and then they came from Macedonia. When they arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Occupied with the word. I'll come back to this phrase in a bit. Some of your translations might say devoted to preaching the word or devoted to the word. Um, it's, it's difficult to translate that phrase exactly, but occupied with the word, testifying Notice this, that word witnessing, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In other words, what is he trying to persuade Jews and Greeks of? He wants to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. He wanted them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, the hope of Israel. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And he wanted to proclaim the gospel to them. Listen to how Paul describes what he proclaimed to Corinth. If you know, he's planting in Corinth. He writes them um, two letters. We know from 1 Corinthians he'd already written them a letter but before that. But we have two of Paul's letters to, to the Corinthian church. And he writes them. Listen to what he says about what he said to them. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. See, when I came to Corinth, I proclaimed, I preached a gospel to you. I would remind you of it, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on that he was seen by the apostles and then to 500 and then to me. Well, what does he, Paul say, the summary of the gospel he preached to them was, I came and I preached to you. I tried to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What's he referring to? The Old Testament. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, the Old Testament. This was the message Paul preached in the hope of persuading people to believe that, that if you will, that was what Jesus commissioned Paul to do. I've commissioned you, Paul, to go and persuade people to believe that I'm the Christ. Paul's commission is to persuade people that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to how Paul states this in 2 Corinthians 5.11 and 18-20. through 20. And I'm just going to read these. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Of what? Verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador does? He represents, if you will, the king who sent him out. Not himself. The king who sent him out. He says what the king wants him to say. He does what the king wants him to do. He doesn't create a new program. He doesn't come up with a new message. He says what he's told and he does what he's told. That's what an ambassador does. He's sent out. We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So his commission was as an ambassador of Christ to witness, proclaim, appeal, implore, persuade men 
to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the commission, I would contend, of every gospel minister. I say gospel minister as a kind of catch-all. It's the commission of every pastor, the commission of every missionary. We are to persuade men to be reconciled to God through Christ. We're ambassadors of Christ to that end. We are sent out as ambassadors to persuade others to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord. That's what Paul understood his commission to be. It's a very simple commission, folks. It's a very simple commission. He heard the Great Commission. I'm sure Paul was well aware of the Great Commission, though he wasn't present when it was given. I'm sure he was well aware of it. Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples, right? Okay, make disciples of all these nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know what he said? I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm sent to persuade men to proclaim, to preach, to implore them to believe Jesus is the Christ, to be reconciled to God through him. That's his interpretation of that, and it's proper. He gets the commission right. But what's Paul's method? That's what I'm trying to lean to. What's his method of persuasion? I'm sort of hinting at that now. How does he believe the commission to persuade others to believe Jesus is the Christ is accomplished? Right? How do I do this? Okay, that's my job to persuade others to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what I've been called to do or commissioned to do. What's the method? How do I get that done? See, we're given a mission, and then we have to come up with how do we accomplish that end, right? So what's the method? So let's look at that, Paul's method as a missionary. What is his method? Look at verse 4 again. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So among Jews... His method was to argue for the fact that Jesus is the Christ, promised in the Old Testament. That he must suffer and die and be resurrected from the dead. That it's necessary, according to scriptures, he do that. He would argue for that. He would proclaim that. He would reason with them. And he tried to persuade. So he reasoned, argued, disputed. He persuaded Jews and Greeks. He was showing them that it was necessary according to the Old Testament, that the Christ suffered, died, and raised from the dead. He's showing them that Jesus did just that. Again, look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. In other words, he was devoted to the word. He was, another way to translate that little, the couple Greek words there is, devoted to preaching or proclaiming the word. He's occupied with it. Now there's this participle that tells us what he means by the occupation he had with the word. He's devoted to the word. He's occupied with the word. But in what way? And then we get this participle. If, if, <laughs> I'm not going to explain the grammar. It's just, it's, it's, let's just say this. A participle is going to help give some definition to this verb. I'll just say it that way. Notice what he says. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He's devoted to the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus or that Jesus is the Christ. His devotion to the word, his occupation with the word leads to him doing what? I'm going to, from this book, testify to you. Witness is that word. I'm going to witness to you that Jesus is the Christ. What does a witness do? What does someone who gives testimony do? They stand and tell people what they saw, what they heard, what happened. They're a person who walks into, if you will, the courtroom as the witness. They say, your honor, members of the jury. It's Greek court was a little different, but I'll just use our modern court. Here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what happened. It's really that plain. I'm devoted to the word, and I'm testifying to you, I'm witnessing to you. Look at what all the Old Testament teaches about the Christ. Jesus fulfilled that. I saw him resurrected from the dead. Jesus died for our sins. 
just testify to it. He's a witness to the truth of it. Paul's method in persuading people, his method in fulfilling his commission is really quite simple. Paul was committed to the method, I want you to hear this, of clear articulation of the content of the gospel. Clear articulation of the content of the gospel. Here are the facts of the gospel. I, I, I think we sometimes get so caught up in talking about faith that we begin to lose sight of the fact that our Christian faith is not a leap into the dark. You understand that? It's not a blind leap into the dark. Our Christian faith is trusting the facts of what happened. We, have, we are making historical claims. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died on the cross. Jesus really rose from the dead on the third day. Those are historical claims, and we're saying, I believe that, and I know that I have no other hope of salvation apart from that, that he is the forgiveness of sins for me. He is my righteousness, my justification, my sanctification, my glory. He is that. That is a historical fact I believe. I trust the witnesses when they tell the story that it's true. Listen, Paul is clear about that. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're pitied most among men. It's all a sham. He's just witnessing to the facts. Clearly communicating what is the content of the gospel. You can see Paul employing the method, this same method, in every missionary account of his. Every missionary account. You go read every missionary account of Paul in Acts. He will repeat this method every time. And this method isn't unique to Paul. Paul is doing precisely what the Lord Jesus himself did. Make a claim that Paul is doing precisely what Jesus did. The book of John, what does Jesus repeat again and again? I just say and do what my father told me to say and do. It's what I was sent for. And now I'm sending you to say and do what I told you to say and do. There's an analogy there. It's not, you know, full in the sense that we're not the Messiah. We're clear about that, right? But there's an analogy there. But look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. After Jesus' resurrection, he's the same author. By the way, what, what time is this session supposed to end? Quarter after nine. So is that clock up there correct? It's 841? Okay. I didn't even bother to look. I should pay attention. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Post-resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples and look what he says. Then he said to them, he had just eaten fish with them and broken bread, etc. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the three sections of the Hebrew Old Testament. The law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, what we would call the historical books, and then we break into the prophets. They would just call the prophets. They would call the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the Psalms, or what we might call the wisdom literature. The whole of the Old Testament. That everything written about me, Jesus says, in the whole of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Open their minds to do what? Understand what? The scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now I want you to catch this. Jesus is commending to them, modeling for them precisely what you then see the apostles do. The apostles, everywhere they go, proclaim that, if you will, that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Everywhere they go. 
The Old Testament is fulfilled in him. He must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the apostles, in fact, start in Jerusalem, and they begin that. We know that from Pentecost. They begin at Pentecost, and if you will, they spread from there out as the history of that plays out. Now, I want to say this. I'm I'm not going to spend any time on it. I'm going to throw this bomb out there and let you come to the Q&A afterwards and argue with me. Jerusalem is a real city. It's a historical place. So that when Jesus later says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you'll be clothed with power and you'll be my witnesses. Again, that word witness, you're going to tell what you saw. By the way, if you go down after that passage, they have to replace Judas. They have to pick someone who had seen all these things to be a proper witness. So they picked Matthias. Right? When he says, you're going to be clothed with power from on high, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That actually happened, folks. That's not a paradigm for your church. There is a real Jerusalem. They were his witnesses there. There is a real Judea. They were his witnesses there. There's a real Samaria. They were his witnesses there. There is a real end of the earth. They were his witnesses there. In other words, the places that are not Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They were his witnesses there. And that is not a command, Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is, in fact, a promise or a prophecy that gets fulfilled in the book of Acts. It's not a paradigm. That, like... If you're from Minneapolis, Minneapolis is not your Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a real place. Right? Minneapolis is part of the end of the earth. You guys understand that? Okay? For those of us from California, it's more the end of the earth than. <laughs> anyway, but. And from those from San Diego, where I live, is the end of the earth. Anyway, we're the unclean Gentiles no one wants to visit. So. Jesus commends this method to them, and it's what we see the apostles doing. It's what we see them doing. Now look at verse 47 of 24 again. Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's a fact. They were witnesses of it. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus proclaimed, okay, proclaimed, same method, the apostles, they proclaimed. Jesus proclaimed from the scriptures, he's the Christ. They proclaimed from the scriptures, he is the Christ. Jesus proclaimed from the scriptures, salvation in his name alone. They proclaimed from the scriptures, salvation in his name alone. So they had the same method and the same message they did exactly that. They followed the pattern of Jesus as he promised they would when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, I have a chart. Like, I don't do visuals, but I decided to do one for you all. Um, And if you want to put it up there, there you go. Um, Let me give you a little bit of background to this chart that um, was really uh, some of the information here is generated from New Testament scholar Alan J. Thompson in his Biblical Theology of Acts. But um, it was put together, this chart was put together by Joel Hepner, one of the guys at my church and a board member at Radius. Now, I'm not going to walk through that just yet, but I'm putting it up here. here. Here's what I want you to see from this chart. I want you to see how clear and overwhelmingly consistent the method is. Now, I'm not going to walk through every evangelistic effort in Acts, but I do want you to see the pattern. And as you look at the pattern, I want you to keep in mind two things you need to understand about the way Luke records sermons in the book of Acts. First, he does not record record whole sermons. You understand that? We are not to imagine that Peter preached at Pentecost for about three minutes. If you read out the sermon, okay? Or if you go forward to some of Paul's sermons later, like in Mars Hill, it may have taken him just about 60 seconds to preach a whole sermon at Mars Hill. We're not to imagine that that's what actually occurred. These are condensed versions of sermons that get the general pattern or the general content of what they were going over. And what you'll also notice in the book of Acts, if you follow, is the sermons get progressively shorter, but the content remains the same. The general pattern of content remains the same, though the sermons get generally a little shorter. So I want to be clear about that. Second, I want to be clear about Luke's language. 
the language Luke uses as they come to these sermons I'm listing here. These, by the way, are all the evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts. It's all of them. I want to um, note something. Luke's clear in his language that these are not self-discovery Bible studies. There's not one of those led. These are not group-facilitated discussions. Luke, in fact, uses the word speaking, preaching, teaching, reasoning, explaining, and arguing, some version of one of those words in the Greek, nearly 100 times. Can you try to make a point? He has a particular emphasis, if you will, on boldness in proclamation. And Alan Thompson has rightly said that boldness in Acts is a reference to clarity in the face of fear. Think about when you're afraid. That's when you're afraid to be clear. Right? When you're afraid of how people might receive what you're about to say, if you're honest, you start to get muddled with the message, don't you? Okay? And boldness in preaching is, I'm going to be clear, come what may. And Luke emphasizes that these men were clear in the face of fear. So let me look, show you that chart. If you notice, I put on the, on the um, what is it for you, left column, the occasion, the audience, the apostolic preacher, um, sort of where he begins, the gospel events, the two primary benefits and the required response. And then I put the various passages across the top. Acts 2 represents Pentecost, that's the occasion. And if you remember Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon those in the, in the upper room. It's about 120, and they begin to speak in foreign languages. Now, scholars argue whether the 12 spoke in tongues or all 120. I don't know. I don't really care. I think that the primary issue there is people started speaking in language they didn't know. And the crowds are going, what's going on here? And so then, in that occasion... At that point, Peter gets up to preach, and Peter begins with God. Peter is your apostolic preacher. The audience are Jews of the diaspora, Jews from every nation who have gathered together. They are present, and Peter preaches, and he begins with God, and he begins with God's promise or prophecy in Joel chapter 2. And he wants to begin with the God of the eschaton, the God of the last things. The latter days have been promised. In fact, we see the first latter day promise in Genesis chapter 49, incidentally. And that carries through the Old Testament. And now Peter stands up and says, essentially, these are the last days. This is that. What was being promised back there, this is that happened. This is the God who promised all that, who's doing this. So he starts with God. Why does he start with God in the prophecy of Joel at Pentecost? Because what were the Jews waiting for? The giving of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of these promises. These promises we find in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel. We find these all over the place that Israel's restoration will come when God pours out the Holy Spirit upon them. When their Messiah comes. And so they're waiting for that day. And now Peter stands up and says, that God who promised that, that's what you see going on right now. He's at work. And then he begins to say, now let me tell you about the life and miracles and death of Jesus Christ, <coughs> whom you crucified. And let me tell you about his resurrection and his exaltation. And let me apply Psalm 2 to him or Psalm 110 to him. Let me show you that this psalm that David says when David sings, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That couldn't possibly be about David. He's still in his tomb. Who's that about? Jesus. And then he's, they, the crowd hears this message. And what do they do? They're cut to the heart. And they cry out, what should we do, right? And Peter stands up. And Peter says what at that point? Responds, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. Everyone to whom the Lord our God shall call. And what is the response? Some of them repent. And are baptized. About 3,000. And then the church begins to meet. The church is born. The one thing I don't have on the pattern here after required response 
right? They get forgiven of the sins, they get salvation, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the benefits. The one thing I don't have after required response is the church is born and they begin to meet. What do they do? They study the apostles' doctrine. Why the apostles' doctrine? Because the apostles are showing you how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. And so they study that. They're devoted to it. And they're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to breaking of bread, etc. Look at the Acts 10 column up there I put up there. This pattern follows through. Peter sent to Cornelius. I give you the Jews there in Acts 2 and Acts 10. We have God-fearing Gentiles, most specifically the God-fearing Gentile Cornelius. Peter is sent to him. Cornelius, who's the audience? Cornelius and his household and some relatives and friends. And who's the apostolic preacher? Again, Peter. Peter starts with God again, but it's very interesting. In Acts 2, he starts with God from Joel and says, remember what God's been promising us? That's here. In Acts 3, he starts with God by saying, he's in Solomon's colonnade, and he starts with God in Acts 3 by saying, hey, the God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's, that's what I'm talking about, right? Because who's he talking to? A Jewish audience in Jerusalem. When he comes to the audience in Acts 10, and his audience is now a God-fearing Gentile, he begins with God by saying, God who shows no partiality. Why start there with Cornelius? See, doesn't God favor the Jews? Would God save a Gentile like me? God who shows no partiality. That's why he begins there. I want you to know the God whom I'm preaching to you, who sent me to you, the God who gave you a vision I was coming. I want you to know about him. And he starts there, and then he says that Jesus preached the gospel, and he goes on to actually preach the gospel. He talks about the baptism of Christ. He talks about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He's hung on a tree, and he's raised on the third day. I don't have resurrection there. It just kind of dropped off. But after, see, there's a comma after tree. It's supposed to say raised on the third day. Anyway, he talks about the benefits. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll receive the Holy Spirit if you repent. If you repent. That's the response. They, he does repent. The Holy Spirit falls upon him and his family. We see a sort of mini Pentecost. And what do they begin to do? Meet as a church. Peter begins to teach them. Go to the column, says Acts 17, completely different group. These are not God-fearing Gentiles. Here's Paul. This is not Peter anymore. Now it's Paul. Paul is in Athens. If you will, the center of Greek life and thought. The audience is Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Right? Quite different than a God-fearing Gentile or than Jews at Pentecost. Paul speaking. Where does he start? You know, I was walking along and I saw this statue to an unknown God. Now the God who you don't know, I know him. He made the heavens and the earth. Why does he start there? I got to take these people all the way back to creation. They're not like Jews in Jerusalem who already know about our creator in Genesis. They're not like a God-fearing Gentile like Cornelius who already knows about our creator in Genesis. These are men, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who have any variety of understandings of God. Most, um, if you know much about Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, they were largely panentheists or pantheists. Um, it's a variety of pantheism called panentheism. I'm not, it's just sort of God is in everything. They're largely that. And Paul wants to come back and say, don't confuse the creator with his creature. Let's go back to the fact that God created everything. The whole world and everything in it. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that he's appointed as judge. Jesus. So he's going to get at, by the way, in, this, in the shortening, he points at Jesus as judging the living and the dead. When he, you know, that Jesus raised from the dead, he's going to raise people, he's going to judge them, etc. He's got to talk about what sin is, why people would be condemned and judged in the first place, who this Jesus is who's coming, why he's the one who has resurrected, etc., etc. And then he talks about the fact that they can be saved or they could be judged, depending on whether they repent and believe or not. Now, in that situation, not very many people responded positively. Paul leaves. A few did, and they went with him. 
Now, additionally, something I don't, I, I said I don't have in the chart. In every instance when the church was born, I want you to hear this. In every instance when the church was born in response to the gospel being proclaimed, the apostles gathered the believers and taught the church the word and then appointed leaders for that church. Even when they were run out of town, because they were at times run out of town, Paul was run out of town, he would find a way to come back and appoint elders. Every time. That's the method used by the apostles without exception. Without exception. But why is this the method always used by the apostles? Because, here, we need to understand this. It's what Jesus told them to do. It's what he commissioned them to do. It's the method commended by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> when the Holy Spirit came upon them, <clears throat> they understood, we go proclaim Jesus as his witnesses, and we pastor churches that are planted, and we appoint leaders. We teach them the Bible. That brings about an important observation about Acts. I, I think we need to understand or we don't understand the book of Acts at all. We, we have a title for this book um, that is not incidentally um, original to the text. You understand we, we place titles on these katamathion according to Matthew or the gospel of Matthew. Then we have this, the Acts of the Apostles. That's a title we put later. And I'm okay with the title of the Acts of the Apostles, it's fine, but it can be a bit misleading. Because to, to act is to work, right? And that's fine, that's not the part that I think is misleading. The question is, who is the one acting in the book of Acts? Who's the one acting? Now there is a pro, an appropriate way to say the apostles are acting. We are seeing the Acts of the Apostles. But whose work ultimately is happening in Acts. How does Luke start the book? In the first book, O Theophilus, that's a reference to Luke. Now think about the Gospel of Luke. He wrote to Luke in the, or Theophilus in, in the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, um, I, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now I want you to hear this. In the Gospel of Luke, he starts before Jesus' birth. He starts before the announcement of Jesus' birth. He goes back to the prophecy of the announcement of, uh, of, the, of the birth of John the Baptist, right? He starts there, promising Zechariah and Elizabeth, you're going to have a son, John the Baptist, and he's going to do this and that. He's going to be the forerunner of the Christ. Then we get to the promise that Mary's going to have a son named Jesus, and then we get some of that story all the way through from that point, all the way through the life, ministry, miracles, teaching, death on the cross, resurrection, and even commissioning of the apostles. You get all that in the first book, O Theophilus. But it's an interesting verb that Luke here, uses here. In the first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Don't miss that. It's essential to understand the book of Acts. If you want a title for the book of Acts, you should just pick verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, be, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's he indicating by the nature of that verb? That was the beginning of his doing and teaching. He is continuing to do and teach, to act and teach. How was he beginning to act, or continuing, sorry, to act and teach? How? By his Holy Spirit, through his apostles. <coughs> Excuse me. Through his apostles or his church. And what's the work of Jesus? What's he teaching? Look at Acts 1-3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So Jesus, Acts 1-3 presents, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he comes to them for 40 days and teaches about the kingdom of God. Speaks about the kingdom of God. Teaches them about the kingdom of God. Now why do I emphasize that? Jesus is teaching them about his kingdom. The Father has delivered his people from the kingdom of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And this kingdom of his Son, this kingdom that the Father has given to him and that Jesus has now given to us. Remember Jesus says that, the Father's covenanted to me a kingdom and I covenant the kingdom to you. This kingdom given to us is the kingdom Jesus is proclaiming. It's what he's proclaiming. Now notice this, it's also the kingdom 
Paul is proclaiming. Many of you uh, might not know about the literary kinds of literary devices used in the Old and New Testament, but there's a literary device that's used called an inclusio. Anybody ever heard of an inclusio? An inclusio is like a bookend. It's a literary device that sort of brackets a text like a bookend, and it tells you that sort of everything between these two points in some way is summarized by these bookends. I want to help you get there. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, there's a son that's going to be born to you, verse 21, I believe, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 28, 20, how does Jesus sign off the Great Commission? I will be with you. Okay, So here in Matthew, we have some sense of God with us in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now in Acts, Jesus is proclaiming, teaching, explaining the kingdom of God. That's how his ministry, if you will, during his four days post-resurrection was going. Listen to Paul, Acts 28 and verse 30. Here's the end of the inclusio, the bracket for the book of Acts. He lived there, Paul, two whole years at his own expense. That's in Rome. He's in prison there under house arrest. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Hear the emphasis? Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God. Proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He is following the example of his king. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. I'm going to proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm going to teach with all boldness and without any hindrance. Paul's doing exactly what Jesus did and Luke wants you to see that continuity. So he brackets the whole book with it. So Paul and the apostles understood they were instruments in the Redeemer's hand. Instruments empowered by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Messiah. In this way, I want you to hear this, in this way, their ministry looked exactly like the ministry of Jesus. Exactly like the ministry of Jesus. However, in another way, their ministry was quite different. In what sense? Because they're instruments and he's the Redeemer. You know, there are a lot of ways in which we should not do what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do does not work in every occasion. Jesus would die for your sins on the cross. I can't do that. Okay? So there are ways in which we understand it's fine to do what Jesus would do. And there are ways in which we recognize we don't do what Jesus would do. Because we're not the Christ. We're instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. The apostles understood that. Well, there's a difference here that's important. I just want you to hear this. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, I want you to hear the difference between Jesus and his apostles. In verse 45, Luke 24, he says, then he, Jesus, opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Hear that? He, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Notice Jesus can open the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures. Paul couldn't do that. Peter couldn't do that. Only the Lord can open blind eyes and deaf ears. Only the Lord can, if you will, open the mind to understand. Only the Lord can give a new heart. Only the Lord can do that. Paul could be the instrument the Lord used to proclaim the word, which the Holy Spirit spoke powerfully through him. And Paul could be interested, he used to open the hearts of people, but Paul was only the instrument. Think about Paul preaching to Lydia in Acts 16.4. Who opens her heart? The Lord. Actually, interestingly, Luke chooses the phrase the Lord. When you see in the New Testament the phrase the Lord used, it's almost always a reference to Jesus himself, especially in Luke and Acts. So the Lord opened Lydia's heart. The Lord opened the minds of his disciples in Luke 24. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia in Acts 16, 14. The Lord does that. The apostles proclaim the same thing Jesus was proclaiming, but they are not Jesus. They don't open hearts. Why do I get at that? Because Paul could not compel belief. If we ask whether Paul could make a compelling case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Absolutely. If we ask whether Paul could cause the unbeliever to cross from spiritual death to life, from being spiritually blind to having spiritual sight, from being spiritually deaf to being one who spiritually hears, then the answer is absolutely not. And neither can we. Paul knew he could not. 
So we never accepted that responsibility. That leads to my third and final point, which is a bit shorter, I hope. <laughs> Paul's responsibility. What did Paul understand his responsibility to be? Because his method is the same as Jesus's. His commission in many regards is the same as Jesus's. But he understands his responsibility is different from Jesus' responsibility because he's not the Messiah. He can't open hearts and minds. He can't save people. Paul's responsibility. What was Paul's understanding of his responsibility as a mission? A missionary, sorry. He was commissioned by Christ to proclaim Christ. But does he bear any responsibility as a missionary beyond, would you hear this? Does he bear any responsibility as a missionary beyond clearly proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ from the scriptures? And when I say clearly proclaiming, I'm not just talking about the evangelistic work at the beginning. I'm talking about the teaching work that comes with that as they are devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Does he bear any responsibility beyond that? Now, I ask this question because we believe, uh, or what we believe we're responsible for informs what we do, doesn't it? If I believe I'm responsible for something, then I do something with regard to that. And I'm going to get into this more tomorrow. This is really largely what my last session is on with regard to the Holy Spirit and missions. But briefly, I want to make a couple quick observations from this passage. Look at verse 6 of Acts 18. Verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him. Now notice that. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ and people oppose and revile him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. Paul believes he's fulfilled what he's responsible for. Their rejection of his message is not an indication he's done something wrong. It's not an indication that he's failed to fulfill his calling. In fact, he clearly states he's innocent. I'm innocent. What does he mean when he uses this language? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. What's he talking about? He's referencing the book of Ezekiel. And you've heard the story the, the, from Ezekiel, the watchman on the wall. What is the role of the watchman on the wall? The watchman on the wall is to warn the city that a threat is imminent, that death is imminent. And if they listen to the watchman, then, the watch, then, then they are saved from that threat. But listen, if they don't listen to the watchman when he warns them, does the watchman bear any responsibility for their failure to listen? No. Okay? Their blood is on their own heads. But if the watchman doesn't warn them, then their blood is on his hands as well. Not just them, but their own. And what Paul is saying is, like a good watchman, I warned you. Your blood's on your own heads. I'm innocent. I did my job. I fulfilled my responsibility. How? By reasoning, arguing, proclaiming, preaching, teaching that Jesus is the Christ from Scripture. I did my job in Corinth. I did my job. Your blood's on your own heads. Paul says the same thing to the Ephesian elders in, in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus nearly three years. But listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Church at Ephesus, I'm innocent of your blood. Why? Why am I innocent of your blood? How does Paul know he's innocent of their blood? What does he say? For I did not shrink. This is uh, um, something called litotis, which is, is a way to say something positive by saying it in the negative. You know, um, Paul does that in Romans 1.16. Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's saying I'm proud of the gospel. It's, it, think about it this way. If my wife looks really nice and she says, how do, you, how do you think I look? And I say, not bad. She knows I mean real good. You guys follow me on that? That's what he's saying. I did not shrink. In other words, I was bold. Bold to do what? I did not shrink from declaring to you Hear that? You receive the message, I declare the message. Not, I give you some resources and you sit in a group and figure it out among yourselves. I declare it, you receive it. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All that the Old Testament has to say about the Christ. I declared it all to you, therefore I'm innocent of your blood. That's how we know he's fulfilled, fulfilled his responsibility. 
His church planning effort in Ephesus is quite telling as he talks to these elders. If you look up at verse 20 of chapter 20, how I did not shrink, there's that phrase again, from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Publicly and privately I taught you. testifying, witness again, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that language is all over the place. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious as myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received in the Lord Jesus. And what's the ministry he received? To testify, to witness to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He is boldly declaring, teaching, witnessing, proclaiming. They are passive, he is active. He is giving, they are receiving. He received, so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and now he gives to them and they receive. Paul has done that in Corinth, and his responsibility is fulfilled. Even though some reject his missionary proclamation, Luke goes on in verse 7 of Acts 18 to say, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So several of these people believe, they're baptized, and the church begins to form there in Corinth. Which Apollos, we learn later in this chapter, the end of Acts 18, Apollos goes to pastor for some time. They're baptized, and the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Though he's being attacked, he continues to stay there doing his job. Some are persuaded, some are not. Some are persuaded, some are not. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them teaching them the word of God. He understood, I can't make you believe. I can't change your heart. I am only responsible to clearly proclaim the truth. What's interesting is that Paul continues to stay in Corinth and preach and teach the word there, even in the face of fear. He did so because the Lord told him, I've got more people to save here. Now he knew his responsibility was to be faithful. I want you to hear this faithful to the commission of Christ by using the method Christ had given him. Now I'm going to look at that more tomorrow, but I want to be clear. Christ is the one by his spirit planting churches. You understand that? Christ is the one building the kingdom. What's interesting about that is we talk about that, but there is no active verb build the kingdom anywhere in the New Testament applied to us. We receive the kingdom. The only active verb with regard to the kingdom in the whole New Testament with regard to us, is proclaiming. That's it. Go look it up. I've done it. I've read every single instant, instance with regard to the kingdom of God in the New Testament, without exception. Proclaim, receive. Be delivered into. Christ is the one building the kingdom by his spirit. Now, is he doing that through us? Yes, through his instruments as we proclaim. We're just stewards of the gospel he's given us. We just do what we're told and we say what we're told to say and we're faithful to that. And Christ builds his church. Christ gives the growth. That's our central contention. I would say it's a central contention of, of our organization, Radius International. Any methodology that fails to follow the pattern of the apostles that we see clearly in Acts the pattern of clearly proclaiming the gospel facts and bringing those to bear on the people group to whom you've gone is a method with a misguided understanding of the commission of Christ, the method he prescribed for us, and the responsibility he gave to us. 
and the specific application of that is gonna be heard throughout this conference. The various speakers, if you will, are going to put the edge on this contentions that will cut into some of the current missions methodologies and ask the question, do we understand our commission? Do we understand the way the one who commissioned us told us to do this job? And do we know what our responsibility is and is not? I get to give you the positive case today. So I like to start with that because I have a very negative booklet for you. Um, when you go out, um, I encourage you to pick up one of these. If you're a married couple, please take one. More people register for the conference than we expected. So I only printed 250 of these, it's free. But it's a brief guide to DMM, Disciple Making Movements. It is both a defining of disciple-making movements and an evaluating of disciple-making movements. So I'd encourage you to pick it up. This is probably the predominant DMM, CPM, um, predominant methodology today. So I encourage you to pick that up. Um, I did some research there and wrote that for you. And I'm here all, we all week, right? So feel free to read it and challenge me all you want. I'm, I'm happy to have as many conversations we need to have about this. Um, but I've, I've put that out there for you. Um, and if I could give you some homework, read that. And, and the other homework I would give you for my session tomorrow is take time to read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. My session tomorrow is not going to go over all four chapters. Well, I'll hit on all four to some degree. But that's the context for it. I'm going to be talking tomorrow on 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 4. And I'd encourage you to read that whole context because it's one continuous argument from verse 10 of chapter 1 through chapter 4. Um, so you have some context for it. You could read that if you want to when you get back to your hotel um, for my next session tomorrow with regard to the Holy Spirit and missions. With that said, I am about four minutes over time. So Joe, do you just want to come up? Or these are outside when they go out, right? Do you want to tell them a transition? Can I pray before you do that? Father, we are thankful. That you loved us before the foundation of the world. That in love you sent your son Jesus to purchase grace for us at the cross and resurrection. That you sent your spirit to apply that work of Christ to us so that we might be united to Christ through faith and be saved, forgiven of our sins, declared righteous. And that your spirit has superintended the writing of your word, which is holy and authoritative and sufficient and inerrant without fault. Father, we pray that we would hear the voice of your spirit. We'd hear what the spirit is saying to the church. For we know that he speaks on behalf of the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would submit to your word pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.